0: Hello and welcome to PathPod. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado and this is another edition of IHC Talk. I'm joined again today by my chromogen siblings, Dr. Sonam Lugavi of MD Anderson Cancer Center and Dr. Andrew Belizzi of the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Welcome guys. Thank you.
1: So happy to be here. I'm very excited for this episode.
0: This is going to be great. Our guest today is Dr. Greg Charville of Stanford University. Welcome, Greg.
2: Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Quite an honor to spend time with the siblings. I didn't know you guys were related.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, you Your parents relate. must be so proud. Yeah. <laughs> it's a chosen
1: yeah. relationship.
0: Yeah, We're related by so. yeah. marriage. Not <laughs> the the blood resemblance doesn't yeah. really come across on Zoom. <laughs> you, you know, where? we've been
3: doing this for four or five months now, and we like each other, but we don't know a ton about each other. I, I have a sister. She's two years younger than me. She's an industrial chemist.
1: So you're a first child?
3: Clearly. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> me too. I have a brother four years younger than me, almost four years. He does IT. Um, <laughs> in actually San Jose. So very close to where Greg is.
0: I'm the oldest of four. Uh, i got a sister that's two years younger than me, a brother that's five years younger than another sister that's 11 years younger. Oh, they're wow. teachers, yeah. and stay-at-home parents. And where oh. did you grow up? Near Rochester, New York.
1: Oh, so awesome. see, we're all first children. Yeah. The, the siblings are all first children.
0: Yeah, I'm the youngest of three.
1: Huh. And you're the youngest of four here, too. Oh, <laughs>
0: yeah. <that's right. laughs> If you're welcome to you that. The... So, Greg, one of the things that I've really liked about doing PathPod and getting the chance to talk to people is hearing about you know their stories of how they got into medicine and pathology. So, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in medicine and ultimately ended up in pathology.
2: Yeah, well, it's one of those stories that maybe didn't have much of a plan or even isn't that exciting of a story i guess but it i think it was a series of events where like many pathologists who who have an interest in science and pursue that interest in science in grade school and enjoy the science classes and and you know again one thing led to another where, as an undergraduate, I was, you know, taking science classes and became interested in the thought of doing research. My first, kind of my first exposure to research. I really enjoyed research, and I think it was through research that I decided to pursue medicine, if you will. The the desire to do research that was relevant to human health, I think, was probably a, a motivating factor. And so it was really for me the idea as an undergraduate that I wanted to pursue advanced training and research. And then I was exposed to this really cool concept that you could do a PhD. And an MD at the same time, I, and I was too young then to know how long that would take. So I went, I, I went ahead and did that, and that's how I that's how I got into medicine.
0: Craig, what was your PhD in?
2: It was nominally in developmental biology, but I studied skeletal muscle regeneration and aging to it. So yeah, we were studying how skeletal muscle regenerates in response to injury, and focusing on a cell population that's that's present in all mammalian adult skeletal muscles called the satellite cells, which are the adult. Progenitor cells of uh, skeletal muscle, and so we studied how those cells respond to injury, how they respond to injury in young mice, how they respond to injury or, or don't respond to injury in old mice.
0: What lab did you work in?
2: I, I worked with uh, Tom Rando, uh, who is uh, a neurologist at Stanford. We were uh, we were actually located at the VA hospital here in Palo Alto. It was a great time, and obviously that that led uh, that led kind of seamlessly in some ways to interest in soft tissue pathology once right. I started residency and kind of That's natural right. questions related to that biology.
0: I did my PhD in a muscle lab. I worked with Eric Olson. Oh, cool. at Southwestern. oh
2: yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's a small muscle lab. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually You're ended up writing my thesis
0: man. on bone development.
2: Oh wow. Cool. Yeah. So, so you were the outcast
0: or <laughs> yeah well, I, I took a detour because yeah I I made a conditional knockout of MF2C which we knew was cardiac lethal, and we figured had a role in later skeletal muscle development. So we made a conditional allele that at first didn't appear to be lethal, Um, so we tried every mesodermal driver we could and ended up with a skeletal developmental phenotype because we did a pan-mesodermal knockout. And as later people worked with the line I generated, they discovered that it was uh, background-sensitive. So I'd, I'd created the conditional in a 129 SVEV background, and as they crossed it to C57 black 6, it became lethal.
1: That all sounds very James Bond.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They're different mouse strains. So in mice, they have all these congenic strains that you can work with that have very homogeneous genetic backgrounds. And as the case with several phenotypes, when you do something in one genetic background, you see an effect or don't see an effect. And so one way to test that is, You start by making the allele in one genetic background and cross it to another, and see Mm -hmm. if you uncover a phenotype. And that's exactly what happened, actually.
3: Can you explain to the audience what a zero gel is? Oh yeah. Well, I wish. Oh well, I (laughs) used to be able
2: to. I think that's the. So Andrew's going back to the step one of my CV, if you will, or publications as an undergraduate. Fifteen years ago. So we were designing polymers that um, could do cool things. So in this case, zero gel is a polymer that includes silicone as its base and we, we could functionalize them. So in this case, we functionalized a polymer that would release nitric oxide for its antibacterial and antithrombotic properties. And that zero gel can do a lot of things. So it releases nitric oxide, but we also can infuse it with molecules that sense things like pH or oxygen or, so thanks for taking me back. But yeah, that was a fun thing. That, and, and that was really sort of an engineering goal, if you will, you know, trying to achieve a certain end, you know, make a sense, make an oxygen sensor that wouldn't become infected if it was indwelling for a long period of time or so, wouldn't thrombose. And in some ways that connects to what we're doing now, right? Because it's sort of engineering diagnostic techniques.
3: Were you a chemistry major, chemical engineer? And you're- Yeah, chemistry. Mark? shown fish? was he is he like a material scientist i think he would call himself a chemist a polymer chemist yeah very cool what can you tell us about heterochronic parabiosis so that's a good that's Did a cool thing so yeah then <laughs> when i when
1: i, I he studies you know, all this like,
3: interesting <laughs> stuff um you know i'm yeah. looking for the fountain like, here, totally i think i on
1: your CV. i think i found it <laughs> Tell What's me that uh, yeah. you're one of those interviewers that you know reads through the applicant's C V and then picks out the oldest paper and is like, Well tell me about that paper. <laughs> yeah, but
3: he knows yeah. all about it. Come on. No, I'm just kidding. He was in the lab. How long were you in the lab for? Four
2: years, five years? I I was in the lab full time for four years. It's a fair question. I should know. <laughs> I should I should know the answer. To that. Although I have to say, most of my work did not revolve around parabiosis or use the technique of parabiosis, but the, but the lab is known for that. So yeah, in my PhD, as I mentioned to you earlier, we were studying how this particular skeletal muscle progenitor cell changed with age, and it turns out a big a big reason for the changes that these that these cells undergo with age is not inherent to the cell itself. So if you take a cell out of an old mouse and put it in a young mouse, actually it'll function quite well, but it stands to reason that it's related to factors in the environment. And one of the really now kind of famous ways that my PhD advisor Tom Miranda and others have shown that phenomenon is you can actually surgically link the circulation of a young mouse to an old mouse, and they can live like that for a period, sharing that circulation. And in, a, in this well-known experiment, that's now been replicated in a bunch of different tissues, the brain, the, the gut, obviously muscle, where it began. You, you see that that linking of the circulation actually rejuvenates, so to speak, the, the progenitor cells of the tissue. So the cells regenerate tissue much more efficiently in, in old mice, as if in a young mouse, by virtue of that exposure to the circulation.
1: That and, observation is giving me vampire instinct.
2: <laughs> I yeah, need that's to find the, yeah.
1: someone young and just link myself to their circulation.
2: <laughs> that's the illusion. And and actually there are clinical trials now underway based on th- that study and others where you where they're infusing older folks typically with some kind of disease. So I think the, the main trials are with in folks with neurodegenerative diseases, but they're infusing them with,
3: with plasma, from, plasma from young donors. Yeah. I, I read about that, but I also read about uh, inducible pluripotency. So you can take a cell and you can induce a pluripotent state by expressing embryonic transcription factors, which are our friends. They're our diagnostic immunohistochemical friends, Oct4, Sox2, Myc, Nanog, and actually I don't know if you still follow the lab, but I just I read this really great paper in Nature uh, Communications where they they treated fibroblasts and endothelial cells from older individuals with these embryonic transcription factors, and they could revert them to having a younger phenotype. And the other thing that's fascinating is we talk a lot about. Genetics And the the sort of the pretext for this session was, oh, we wanted to do a session about mutation specific immunohistochemistry or fusion specific immunohistochemistry. But another incredibly important idea, concept is histone modification and chromatid modification. So what happens when you put these embryonic transcription factors into the old cells is it wipes out a lot of the methylation and an acetylation marks and sort of resets, uh, rejuvenates, but it resets the epigenetic marks in these, in these cells. And this actually has diagnostic relevance, you know, to what, to what we'll talk about in a little bit. Mm-hmm. So did you get to work on, on that rad stuff? Did you, get to, did you get to make an old mouse young again? Yeah, you know, I did some some work on aging, and
2: we we were interested in understanding at a mechanistic level how some of the specific factors that we knew that change in age environment actually manifested themselves in terms of pathology within the cells. Even at that point, I was very interested in human biology. So part of my work was translating what we knew in mouse to human. And so we developed protocols to isolate these progenitor cells from human and we did studies to kind of replicate what we knew about mouse muscle, stem cell biology, and human.
0: See, we heard a little bit about how you got interested in medicine, and we took a long detour into your PhD. Tell us a little bit about your journey in pathology and your career so far.
2: It's a pretty simple story, I guess. I grew up in North Carolina and went to undergrad at the University of North Carolina. And I say it's a simple story because then in 2007, actually, I came came to Stanford to join the medical scientist training program, so the MD-PhD program. And I've really just kind of stayed put ever since I did my MD-PhD. Finished that in 2015 and then stayed for residency. Did a fellowship in gastrointestinal and liver pathology, and kind of all the while during uh, my residency and fellowship, was squirreling away the good soft tissue cases and bone cases and going to t- sarcoma tumor boards. So, I kind of pursued that interest in parallel. And then, yeah, I joined the faculty at the end of that uh, AP training and fellowship year. And now I attend in, in AP. Uh, and it's really a 50-50 split GI liver and uh, bone-soft tissue pathology, maybe a little bit more of the latter these days.
3: It's great. Who else signs out uh, BST at Stanford?
2: Yeah, so Matt
3: Vanderein, who has been
2: a mentor of mine in that area for a long time, and then Brooke Howitt, who also does GYN pathology. Terry Longaker still does a bit of bone-soft tissue with us. Mm-hmm. Of course, she does love GI and GYN as well. And uh, Christian Kunder, also, who does a, a lot of molecular pathology as well. So
3: Yeah, I know... Brooke, yeah. she was uh, my resident at Brigham. Uh, oh, cool! I I know Christian. He's a nice guy. We we yeah. worked together. I helped him validate. He was validating fumarate hydratase a few years. Oh, a cool! Years ago, and I shared some cases yeah. with him. And everybody knows. Yeah. Everybody knows Terry. I'm such a huge fan of of Matt Vanderine. I mean. We all we talk about translational molecular pathology, and he kind of uh, discovered it, invented it. So I show figures from his papers all the time. You know, we yeah we like to make stains, and and you guys are are good at discovering the targets. Yeah. His office is literally right next door to mine, so
2: I'm very fortunate.
1: So is all of uh, sign out pretty much subspecialized right now at Stanford, or do you do any general sign up?
2: Yeah, it it is all subspecialized. I mean, we we obviously rotate on on the first section service, and that's still general, but it's all subspecialized now. And that change took place. You know, we sort of used to, and maybe still to some extent, kind of pride ourselves on on being generalists. But the, but yeah. it became a practical limitation, and we we became subspecialized. Actually, during my training, so it was, I think, in twenty sixteen that we started doing fully subspecialized sign out. And I think it's obviously been been good and we enjoy it. I, I enjoy the mix of doing
3: two subspecialties and yeah, it's worked out well.
1: I think it's great.
3: Yeah. So who made all these sarcoma TMAs? You guys got like uh, 500 sarcomas in a ray, something like yeah, that.
2: That's that's credit to Matt. He was a big player. The history of uh, microarrays, of course, goes back to Pat Brown, who was faculty at Stanford. He developed the... DNA, RNA microarray, of course, for analysis of gene expression. And then the idea was translated to tissue microarrays. I don't know that Matt was the first, but he was one of, the f- one of the first to employ that strategy. And as you said, now young folks like me benefit tremendously from that resource, whether it's you know titering an antibody or analyzing several hundred cases in one fell swoop. Obviously, it's an important strategy.
3: And your biospecimen resource extends beyond sarcoma. I I cite papers that came out of your institution 20, 25 years ago, like MUM1, for example, that it's expressed Mm -hmm. by melanomas was discovered in a TMA project from your lab, that CD138 is frequently expressed by epithelial neoplasm. Same deal. There's Mm -hmm. just loads and loads of great data that come out of your hospital and you're that amazing biospecimen resource. I think One of the take homes is that wherever you are, you're gonna be intellectually curious and you'll have the opportunity to take advantage of various resources at your disposal. And we all have different resources at one's disposal. So here at Iowa, Mm -hmm. when I got here, there were zero tissue microarrays and I've spent the last nine years making TMAs of as much as I could, but you burn a lot of juice building them from scratch. So it's cool that they already exist where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're all fortunate to work at,
2: at, you know, kind of high volume centers that see rare tumors. I think even still something that's been important for me is interactions with people outside of our our institution of studying something rare like sarcoma and, and certain sarcomas are rarer than others. Obviously, there's still an important element of collaborating. And that's where it's so nice that we are in a community of pathologists that we're in. And I know we all have interactions outside our own institution that really make that research possible.
3: So how did you get plugged in with with Alex Lazar and then Andrew Folk? He's into RMS. He's always been into that, I call it transcription factor lineage infidelity. Mm-hmm. He, he's, yep. he's talked about a similar phenomenon as regards some of the intermediate filaments how did you connect with Alex and how did you co- connect with Andrew?
2: It really could be a pretty long story of a, of a series of mentor interactions, you know, again at Stanford and beyond. You know, I guess it, I, I should give credit back to Matt and Terry, really, who became mentors to me locally, but then very quickly opened up to a broader community of pathologists. Matt was the one who introduced me to Alex. Who then really became a mentor for me Bright, you all know him he's such a great guy he's very generous all, all these people are very generous so so he introduced so matt introduced me to alex matt and alex introduced me to, to jason hornick at the brigham who i work with now quite a bit on things because they have such a wealth of cases terry introduced me to andrew i spent a month at the mayo clinic with andrew learning from his clinical cases and now that's evolved into a research and, and clinical mentorship and i guess you know for the trainees who are listening I think that's the number one message from my experience is just the value of those interactions with mentors outside of my own institutions. And now sitting in the position of faculty, I can kind of see how nice it is when a trainee interacts with you, whether they're from your institution or from another institution. Just having that interest in a topic is really enough to break the ice with, you know, people like you all who are very prominent in your field and then then the people that we've mentioned who are very prominent in their field. So um, I think we all share that perspective.
3: You know, the reason that I wanted to get Greg on is I wanted to be mentored by him. Yeah, uh, right. just because someone's young doesn't mean that they can't teach an old dog like me a trick or two. I'm hoping for a, a mutually beneficial relationship. Jason has just been raving about you the last six months or a year or so.
1: Well, right. the audience don't see it, but I see sparks on the screen. Right. Yeah, They're right. forming.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's high praise coming from you and coming from him, of course. And I guess that's the other fun thing is when we interact with anyone older, younger, we all we all have something to, to give one another. Right. So that's that's
1: the cool thing about it. It's such a small world. You know, Alex Lazaro was my fellowship director. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I think it was actually his first year of being fellowship director when I joined as a fellow. He's an awesome guy. It, it was really fun yeah. being his fellow.
3: So your BST, you didn't do a fellowship. You just sort of picked it up on the job. That's, and you did, yeah. a, I'm a, I'm a, which is probably like doing you know, <clears throat> six months of fellowship anywhere else, given the volume and complexity. And you do GI. I'd like you to talk about, especially for folks going into academics it's very rare for someone that's doing Surge path to go into an academic job and just do one subspecialty. That's a great question. I think I guess, you know, first
2: uh, the disclaimer right is that as as you all know, y'all have such unique experiences, right? So, you know, the fact that I didn't do a BST fellowship doesn't mean that someone else wouldn't wouldn't do one or the fact that I did a GI fellowship doesn't mean that someone else should do a GI fellowship, but I think I benefited from being an institution where even though we didn't have a BST fellowship by name, we have a very, very rich, both intramural and extramural sort of consult volume of bone and soft tissue cases. And so that, you know, I I felt like that really enabled me to get exposure to this plethora, as you say, of, of different entities that we encounter in bone and soft tissue pathology. And then I think, you know, what I tell trainees at Stanford from my experience is that, you know, getting involved in research with people like Alex, with people like Jason, with people like Andrew Fultz, I think, you know, that, you know, we think of research as being very focused on one area. So, so we write papers on and We learn a lot about what seems like a small area of, of soft tissue pathology, but in some ways that opens up this whole world of exposing yourself to that clinical field through your research. And so, you know, as I started doing this research, people started to show me cases at Stanford and from elsewhere. And so that it, it sort of all feeds off of one another, the clinical, the research. And so I, th- I think having that research focus also allowed me to evolve as a clinician. And I think that's true, both in GI and the uh, bonus soft tissue pathology. I think it's, it's very important, obviously, in any area of pathology to maintain that clinical exposure, right? Really, as soon as you stop seeing those cases, you can lose a lot of your feel for that diagnostic area and, and I think the other thing to acknowledge is that we all learn a lot on once we become attendings, right? So to, in some sense, there's so much learning on the job that what you want, I mean, you know, my feeling is you want th- that good training equates to understanding your limitations, knowing when you need help, understanding what tools are available to you. So in bone soft tissue pathology, how can you check yourself with a diagnosis? How do you know, you know, do you, if, something's, if, if something's, what is your room for error? You know, is something benign? Could it be malignant? Is it okay to sign out descriptively? Having that feel for making clinically significant decisions is more important than knowing specific entities necessarily. So that's been my experience. And I think Stanford for me was a great place to train because I I was able to get this subspecialty training in GI liver pathology. But then again, I was able to really, throughout my training, find these opportunities to also expose myself to bone soft tissue pathology. So that flexibility in a training program was really important to me. And I think that's probably true at a lot of other places as well. So the, so the message to trainees would be to feel confident trying to build your own path, uh, even if it's not necessarily through an accredited fellowship. I'm sure I would have loved to do a bone stop tissue fellowship, but my wife made me get a job. So
3: what does your wife do
2: and where is she from? Did you guys meet at UNC? We, we actually, we met at Stanford and she's an anesthesiologist and a wonderful mom as well. <laughs> Great. How big is your family at this point? During the COVID period, actually, we were fortunate to welcome our second daughter in June. So it's been a busy and fun time for that reason. You know, we've all been spending more time at home. That's been the silver lining for me, I think, is being being able to spend time at home with with our new one. How old is your oldest or older? She's two and a half.
1: How is she doing? Is she liking the new member of the family?
2: <laughs> yeah, she's pretty okay. good. She's always been really into uh, taking care of her stuffed animals and her baby dolls. And so I think it's a natural, it's been a natural
3: transition for her. Although the real thing may be a little bit overwhelming, but yeah, she's pretty good. (laughs) You were familiar with Pac-7 and you you studied satellite cells. Is this what led you to rhabdomyosarcoma specifically, or, or is that just a coincidence? Nope. That's exactly
2: what happened. In fact, it was was a direct sequence from knowing that kind of molecular hierarchy of transcription factors that regulates myogenesis, and then you know having the great opportunity starting to learn about human oncologic pathology to realize that there was this subtype of tumors that differentiate that showed skeletal muscle differentiation and probably was replicating developmental myogenesis in an oncogenic state. Well, we and then the technical aspects, you know, knowing exactly what antibody could be used and knowing that antibody worked extremely well for me for many years, which is obviously, as you all know, uh, in running your IHC labs, a very important aspect of the whole story too. So, yeah, there was a direct association. So, you and went, then again, having the mentorship the mat, from that
3: to you too, said, Hey, I know about, I know about skeletal muscle stemness, and can I look at PAC seven and small round blue cell tumors? And he said, yeah, that's a great idea. Here's the, here's the erase. Precisely. Did, did you have support in bringing up the IHC or do you have a core lab to help you with that? Or, I mean, that's a substantial, and we'll talk about it with the DDIT3 because there there's yours, there's the polyclonal and there's the old, maybe five prime untranslated region one that never was commercialized. There's, there's lots of hits and misses. Did you hit a home run with your first try? With PAC seven, that was, you know, again,
2: because I had experience with that specific antibody, we knew that it worked in human. In fact, we, I, th- I don't think we knew for sure that it worked in immunohistochemistry, but I, because I had mostly been doing immunofluorescence, so we knew it worked on formalin fixed tissues. And then I had the technical support of, of very experienced people in Matt's lab to help me translate that as a new resident who hadn't worked with human tissue that much or formalin fixed archival tissue. To use that antibody. But it's a very robust antibody. I mean, I don't want it, it wasn't, it wasn't a challenge. It wasn't challenging from a technical perspective because that antibody works extremely well. I'll tell you anecdotally, one of the very interesting things, and, and this is good for the trainees in the audience here, I'll always remember the very first titer of that antibody we did was on a normal human tissue array. And I knew that there was skeletal muscle on the array, so I figured it would be a good array to run. And the report back to me from the folks who looked at it, some very experienced folks who have looked at a lot of immunohistochemistry, was that the antibody didn't work because it wasn't positive on the titering array. But it turns out that actually it was just so specific yeah. that it was only present in the very rare satellite cell in the skeletal muscle sections.
3: Yeah. That's the home run. Um,
2: and then we extended it to applying it on, on rhabdomyosarcomas,
3: um, Mike, do you use uh, Pax seven in your rhabdomyosarcoma diagnostics? It's it's really interesting. Greg mentioned this hierarchy of transcriptional regulation, and we use Myogenin and MyoD one, but Pax seven is more embryonic. It's the first. Mm-hmm. It's the first transcription factor. It's the driver in general you would you would want to use the more embryonic of the transcription factors cuz it's more perhaps more likely to be expressed in less differentiated tumors i think your result with the embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma speaks to that so this this pax7 is a really really good marker of embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma and then Greg had a secondary finding that was very interesting that, that we could talk about in a few minutes. So has this has this PAC-7 immunohistochemistry caught on at all in, in PEDS-PATH?
0: Not, not yet in PEDS-PATH. I'm not sure exactly why um, it hasn't. That The markers we use, the myogenin and myod, are a little bit downstream. And I think the difference is that the PAC-7 in normal tissues, marks the satellite cells, which are precursors that can differentiate into radomyoblasts. And myogenin and marks mark cells that are committed to differentiating into radomyoblasts. And I think there's really good evidence that rhabdomyosarcoma in particular isn't always... It's not necessarily a cancer of skeletal muscle. It's cells that have undergone some differentiation towards skeletal muscle. So it, it may be that's why those markers that are a step or two down the transcription factor cascade end up being more popular. Greg, for some background for the audience, tell us a little bit about the utility of PAC-7 in, in diagnosing right
2: I would say in some ways it's an unsettled, and, it, and I think like all of practice and surgical pathology, kind of a subjective, if you will, thing. But It's true, Andrew gave a very nice description of its position in the hierarchy, and I think what follows from that, that position sort of upstream, if you will, as you were articulating, Mike, is that myoD and myogenin, as you said, uh, described very nicely, is are, are indicators of a committed cell type, whereas PAC7 is, is not necessarily in a committed cell type. And I think our observations in human tumors actually correlates very well with that, right? It's not in contrast to myoD and myogenin, which I would say are specific for rhabdomyoblastic differentiation, PAC-7 is not specific for rhabdomyoblastic differentiation. It is a feature often seen in cells that are undergoing rhabdomyoblastic differentiation. And in that sense, Andrew, as you mentioned, in certain embryonal rhabdomyosarcomas in particular, it can be very helpful because as we know, myogenin and myod-positive cells can actually be quite rare in some of those tumors. I view those as sort of relatively undifferentiated embryonal rhabdomyosarcomas. But again, you would lose out on some specificity. Obviously, the example of Ewing sarcoma is a, is a notable one that we found. But then there are other you know, synovial sarcomas, mesenchymal tumors that are sort of poorly differentiated mesenchymal tumors that can express PAC-7 as well. So I think the utility in my diagnostic practice, and, and I should say, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm very unique. I studied it. I use it clinically because I'm very used to its use. I guess I, I'm heartened by the fact that my colleagues in our soft tissue group also have kind of developed uh, a knack for using it as well. I think the utility really is in those embryonal rhabdomyosarcomas or other malignancies exhibiting rhabdomyosarcomas differentiation that they're above myoD and myogenin, if you will, on the hierarchy. So in those cases, there, there's plenty of cases I've seen typically in the consultation service where a rare myo-D or myogenin positive cell gets overlooked and PAC-7 is sort of diffusely positive or much easier to identify the positive cells, or give some reassur- reassurance that that tumor is more diffusely rib- rhabdomyoblastic than you might have appreciated on a dear myogenin stain.
1: So if you have a tumor that's PAC-7 negative, can you confidently say that it's not rhabdomyo? No? Uh, I-, I see Andrew no, shaking his head. No.
2: Yeah, so we, we try <laughs> to make that, that point that, that okay. it's not, right. yeah, they're, they're, really I would say none of the lineage factors in my- PAC-7 myodin myogenin are 100% sensitive. We know in spindle cell rhabdos, for instance, myogenin is often very focal and negative. Uh, MyOD does a much better job in in general in that class of rhabdomyosarcoma. So you have not
3: excluded rhabdomyosarcoma just by doing a PAC-7. You know, so the interesting thing that and unexpected thing that came out of Greg's study is that it's a baller marker of Ewing sarcoma. It was diffusely strongly expressed by like seven of seven. But then he did a subsequent study where he looked at over 100 Ewing sarcomas and it was positive in all of them. It was negative in all the chick ducks four or sick ducks four, depending on, you know, what side of the debate uh, you're on. And it's interesting. So, you know, Mike said, oh, myogenin, myo-D1 committed... I think that Pac Seven hasn't caught on yet because our diagnostic practices, they're ingrained. They're uh, canalized was one of the was one of the terms that your mentor used. And so it takes actually disruptors to to subvert the dominant paradigm. I'm gonna bring up Pac Seven and I'm gonna start using it in rhabdomyosarcoma. I'm also gonna u- you know, it's interesting, I brought up this NKX 2.2, which I like quite a bit, mm-hmm. but it seems like if you've excluded rhabdomyosarcoma, which, you know, CD99 and, Des- and Desmond, that Pax7 is probably a more specific marker for Ewing sarcoma than NKX 2.2 is, because NKX 2.2 is positive in mesenchymal chondrosarc and some other things as well. So...
1: Isn't it a positive in prostate cancer too?
3: That's NKX 3.1, NKX 3.1. Ah, see,
1: you can see I'm not a surgical pathologist.
3: Oh, that's okay. (laughs) NKX 3.1 has a very interesting, controversial role in soft tissue pathology as well. TTF1, by the way, is NKX 2.1. I wondered, did you look at, did you look at PAX 3? Why did you look at PAX, I mean, you looked at PAX 7 because it's, it's the king of skeletal muscle, stem cell transcription factors. But what about PAX3?
2: Yeah, so there's a whole nother story about PAX3. We have looked at PAX3. There's a lot of uh, slides sitting in my office of various things staying with PAX3. So PAX3 is interesting. In some ways, it is more, it, it's more It's uh, more broadly expressed, if you will, in a neural crest lineage. So we know it has important roles in melanocytes, for instance, melanocytic differentiation, also, in, in the nerve sheath, there's some suggestion that it's going to be present there. But we have been interested in its expression around the myosarcoma. I can tell you also from a technical perspective, in, in my hands, the antibodies that I've used for PAX3 have not been mm-hmm. up to snuff for me. We, we have applied them in very narrow situations, and I think it's okay, certainly OK to do that. So biphenotypic sinus nasal sarcoma, for instance, the Brigham group applied the, the, a PAX-3 stain there. And I think that it w- seems to work very nicely there. So there certainly are examples where it can be utilized. And I think it, you can detect PAX-3 overexpression in PAX-3, uh, FOXO1-positive, alveolar rhabdomyosarcomas, for instance. My feeling, though, is that it's not specific to those tumors, even among rhabdomyoblastic tumors. It would also be expressed by melanomas, in my experience. So there's a couple limitations there in terms of both application technically and I think conceptually.
3: Did you, did you look at
2: FOX01? I have not. Coming next.
0: Yeah. Hey, I, w- I wanted to ask you, Greg, just real quick, yeah. the cases of alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma that were PAC-7 reactive, do you know if those yeah. had a PAC-7 fusion?
2: So this is, a great, this is a great story for the molecular surgical pathologists in the audience. As you know, PAX-3, FOXO, PAX-7, FOXO, PAX-3, and PAX-7 alternate with one another. Developmentally, they can change places and obviously in oncogenesis and in the progression of alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma. So it turns out our, the PAX-7 antibody that we use diagnostically is directed towards the C-terminus. We don't know exactly what the epitope is. But we believe that it it's probably an epitope based on the antigen that was used to raise the antibody. It's an epitope that would not be present in the translocation protein. So you wouldn't expect our antibody to be detecting the chimeric protein, the, the fusion protein. And so then there's a whole interesting story about what is the pattern of pax 7 expression in alveolar rhabdomyosarcomas. And that's actually very interesting. Where we see in alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma, Mike, as you know, well, uh, myogenin in general is diffusely positive, diffusely strongly positive. Whereas its expression in embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma is more heterogeneous, we see in, in alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma, PAC 7 expression is actually quite limited in general as a class of tumors. And it seems like it may be marking a population that, that may be myogenin negative within, within that. So reflecting some small degree of heterogeneity of, un, of uncertain significance. But you can almost start to pick out alveolar rhabdomyosarcomas from embryonal rhabdomyosarcomas based on that, that pattern of PAC 7 expression. I wouldn't recommend that everyone do that. That's, again, one of those nuances that you pick up once you use the stain a lot. Have you
3: subsequently looked at any B-Core rearranged sarcomas or ITD with uh, PEC7? I, I noticed, because it was several years ago, that that there weren't any in your cohort. I know you, yeah. you nailed down the chick ducks for being negative. Yeah. I, I have not looked at that many tumors, but I believe that there
2: is some level of expression in B-Core rearranged tumors. Okay. It so would be heterogeneous, but I...
3: Is it like the expression in synovial SARC or is it more diffuse and strong? Similar to synovial, yeah.
0: Sonam, do you want Andrew,
2: would
1: I be correct to say that you have a special place in your heart for B-Core mutated, rearranged ITD? I feel like it comes up a lot.
3: You know what's (laughs) interesting about the B-Core rearranged sarcomas is I I finally validated B-Core IHC, and it's, it's great. i um, glad to have it. But it was hard to get the validation cohort together. And, you know, we talked about this last time, 10 and 10, expected positives, expected negatives. Yeah. I was using SAP B2 as a surrogate based on the MSK paper that looked at gene expression profiling. And and one of the caveats is that synovial sarcomas are frequently SAP b 2 positive. It's just, it's not as extensive as it is in the B-Core rearranged sarcoma. So there's something about the transcriptional profile of B-Core rearranged sarcomas, perhaps, that has something in common with synovial sarcoma, Mm -hmm. if like the the SATV2, that the PAC-7 is also expressed in the uh, B-Core rearranged sarcomas. Very cool.
1: So Greg, do you want to tell us a little bit about the DDI- T3 paper and how you got interested in developing the antibody and tell us the story of how you made the magic happen.
2: Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like many of us surgical pathologists, I was really motivated by the clinical practice and encountering mixed liposarcoma in all of its forms in practice and appreciating that while well, we had a good molecular understanding of the tumor and, and, and actually very good molecular tools, whether that be break apart fish for DIT3 or EWS or FUS or next-gen sequencing, or RT-PCR, that there may be some utility in having I an mean, chemical marker for myxyl liposarcoma. I joke with some of the folks who worked on the project with me is I'm just the first uh, soft tissue pathologist that needed a, an IHC marker <laughs> For mixed cell <laughs> sarcoma, but but no, and also I I think you know it, it has various kind of morphologic manifestations. I, I mean the most notable being its its high grade manifestation as a round cell sarcoma, where morphologically you wouldn't you wouldn't ordinarily be able to pick it out very well, and that's what motivated us. And, and and following in the footsteps of many folks, including Mike, including Andrew, who have done a lot of groundbreaking work on uh, applying uh, this concept that you can detect overexpression of a component of a fusion oncoprotein. I mean, it's chemically as a diagnostic tool. Stat six, camta one, WT one from Mike's work. So you know, I think I mean, there's, BCL a, lot of, there's too, a lot of
1: people. I don't. I'm not. BCL two. Not a
2: pathologist. Yeah. Hematopathologist. yeah.
1: <laughs> I think that's great. Honestly, I don't understand the question of why do we a chemistry when you can do fish or when you can do molecular. It's much more rapid. It's much cheaper. If if you can find a specific, a mutation-specific antibody, it's like you hit gold. I mean, of course, you can always do the genetic testing and the fish testing to confirm, but as a screening tool, why not?
3: Beautiful. Love it. Yeah. About 20 bucks, too. You're preaching to the choir, but I think, you know, it's, it's important to acknowledge,
2: I guess, I, I describe it as the complementarity of all these techniques, right? Morphology, yeah. genetics, IHC each has its own lack of sensitivity and lack of specificity in certain contexts, and it's bringing them all together that's uh, the key.
3: There's a couple papers that have asked this question with immunohistochemistry, one from 15 years ago and one in the last year or two. I guess one question, did you know about those papers going in or did you find them, did Jason find them when he was writing the manuscript?
2: yeah we did know about them there's a paper from a few years ago that described the use of a rabbit polyclonal antibody and described the finding of expression in a diverse array of lipomatous neoplasms and reading that paper as a scientist when you do a phd or have a lot of research experience you think about how you might do an experiment a little bit differently or how you might be doing analysis a little bit differently in that case you know that analysis that was done was quite nice that's a, that's a nice paper um i think the technical difference there right is that the use of a polyclonal antibody versus a monoclonal antibody and so, observing that there could be some utility there, it also didn't make sense to me that a lot of the immunoreactivity that was seen was cytoplasmic, and so I wondered on the basis of that if, if some of the immunoreactivity could be not reflecting the oncoprotein protein, or or there may be some opportunity. Now, the paper from 15 years ago that was published also published in HSP is actually a really elegant study in which they generated their own antibody to an epitope that that, and this is some cool molecular biology. So the DDIT3 that's present in the fusion oncoprotein FUS or EWS DDIT3 that that gives rise to mixed liposarcoma actually is full length DDIT3. It's not only full length. So, so the full coding region of DDIT3, it also actually includes the five prime UTR of DDIT3 in that fusion oncoprotein. And what this paper from 15 years ago did that was quite nice is they actually designed a antibody or they raised an antibody against an epitope that was present or thought to be present in that five prime UTR region which would at least theoretically be completely specific for that fusion oncoprotein, would not reflect endogenous DDIT3 expression as we are with the antibody that we're using. And that and that study did a really good job. I mean, they looked at quite a few mixed liposarcomas, I think at least a couple dozen. They did not look at that many tumors on the differential. So it's not clear what the specificity of the antibody would have been. And then that antibody just didn't come into practice either because it wasn't commercially available or couldn't be made commercially available so what
3: happened was when they went to pick your antibody company when they went to to try to get this antibody commercialized the vendors said it's going to be 15 years before Greg Charville needs uh 3 <laughs> three immunohistochemistry yeah. to diagnosis of mixed exactly. <laughs> Also, yeah. I, I'm glad that, that Greg did it, you know, having spent the last week, that's not true. The last day and a half reading the collected works of Greg Charville. I know that when, when Greg thinks that somebody, uh, did something smart. He refers to it as elegant.
0: You mentioned that the DDIT3 antibody you're using also detects the endogenous protein. And and in your paper, you described that strong diffuse expression was characteristic of myxoid liposarcoma, but you saw lower levels of expression in patients that had undergone chemotherapy or radiation. How did you come to piece together that that was the correlation?
2: Yeah, that, that was totally an empiric thing. And I should say, as you can see from our conversation about PAC-7 and, and now DDIT3, in many ways, I go into these projects agnostic to whether these will end up being useful diagnostic tools in some way. I'm really just trying to understand what is the expression pattern, what's the bi- biology underlying these proteins. Obviously, DDIT3 would have diagnostic utility if it worked out. In, in this case, that was totally empiric. DDIT3 stands for DNA damage inducible transcript. And we knew that its biology was such that in a, a normal non oncogenic context, its expression is turned on when a cell is exposed to any of various stressors, whether that's oxygen deprivation, DNA damage, and any of its form nutrient deprivation. My hypothesis really was, what is going on in these dedifferentiated liposarcomas that co-amplify DDIT3 with MDM2? So DDIT3 exists in this very interesting position on chromosome 12 with a bunch of uh, very interesting friends like MDM2 and STAT6 and others. And, and we know from s- some elegant work that, that preceded ours that, for you, Andrew, threw that in there, that, that uh, DDIT3 is co-amplified with MDM2 in a subset of D-differentiated de- de- liposarcomas. And remarkably, that subset of D-differentiated de- de- liposarcomas morphologically can mimic mixed liposarcoma. So these were tumors of the retroperitoneum that were probably called mixed liposarcoma 20 years ago, but in fact, there are these dedifferentiated liposarcomas. So a very fascinating story. And I, I actually expected that subset of tumors to probably overexpress DDIT3. And so in looking at those tumors, it turned out that they seemingly didn't really, at least the subset of tumors that we knew had DDIT3 amplification in d liposarcoma, liposarcoma and or had mixed liposarcoma-like morphology. It seemed like in our hands that what it didn't really correlate too well, which is fine. I guess good for the diagnostic utility of the marker. But then what came to be is that one case of d liposarcoma with DDIT3 amplification that did have DDIT3 expression by IHC, we just noticed that it had prior exposure to the cytotoxic chemotherapy. And then it was sort of this random sampling, you know, one or two mix of fibrosarcomas here, a couple of, you know, a pleomorphic liposarcoma there. And so the randomness of the expression made me wonder if these are tumors that have seen cytotoxic therapy in one form or another. So we found that correlation. I would say it's still very unsettled, right? Because that that didn't account for all the DDIT-3 expression we saw in non-nixer liposarcomas. So I want to leave it very open <laughs> to everyone that, that we don't fully understand exactly what's going on there, but that was a suggestion.
3: I thought that was super neat. And I thought that the idea that the co-amplified DDLPSs would be DDIT3 overexpressing was an elegant hypothesis question. Since it was only one of three, did the tumor that expressed DDIT3, uh, the DDLPS that expressed DDIT3, a lot of Ds, yeah, did it it express that stat six?
2: That's a great question, and I don't know the answer. Okay, in that particular tumor, but that's a great question. Whether these are all of these tumors are the same. I think I speculated in the paper that they would be because actually STAT6 is distal to MDM2 on chromosome 12. So DDIT3 is sandwiched by STAT6 and MDM2. So if you have STAT6 amplification, you would, ne- you would I think, necessarily have DDIT3 amplification. It, it also turns out that the proportion of differentially differentiated liposircum is that in our hands that had uh, DDIT3 overexpression also had is similar to the ones that had STAT6 expression. And I think the level of STAT6 expression, you, like the frequency of cells that you see positive in most d liposarcomas is, is kind of similar to what we're seeing with deit 3 in general.
1: Uh, so Greg, can you tell me what the mechanism for overexpression for uh, the protein is uh, when you have the fusion protein? Because in the heme path world, there are different mechanisms for aberrant antigen expression, right? Let's say if you have an NPM1 mutation, it's the cytoplasmic localization that causes the abnormal pattern of staining, whereas if you have TP53 mutation, it's the lack of normal degradation that leads to overexpression of the protein. So what is it for DDIT3? Can you tell us the mechanism?
2: That is an excellent question, and the answer is, no, I cannot. I don't know. We know that in general, a lot of these fusion oncoproteins are overexpressed, actually at the RNA level, but also at, and at the protein level. I think in general, in many cases, we don't really know why it is overexpressed. You know, you bring up some some potential hypotheses, whether that's related to the stability of the protein, or whether it's somehow in a a cyclic feedback leading to overexpression of itself, which I believe is known for certain fusion oncoproteins. But I have to say, in the case of uh, mixed leprosarcoma, I, I don't know the answer to that. But it would follow with a long line, obviously, of other fusion oncoproteins that are Overexpressed and and nuclear localized as chimeric tr- transcription factors, so it is functioning we think as a chimeric tr- transcription factor, hence its nuclear localization. A- as in other fusion oncoproteins that involve FUS and, and EWS, these ETS transcription factors they uh, or, or FUS and the EWS they, they tend to donate a transcriptional activation domain to the to the uh, DDIT3. So DDIT3 is thought to actually natively function as a transcriptional repressor. But it would follow that when you add that EWS or FUS 5 prime transcriptional activating domain, you would make it a, a transcriptional activator. So you're turning a repressor potentially into an activator.
3: You know, Greg, he's very humble. He's like, oh, a diagnostic application, I don't know, that's for the public to decide. I'm just, you know, he said, I'm just putting it out there. But I'd say, you know, that's, that's why we're here, because it, it seems like a potentially very useful tool and you you highlighted one a a few minutes ago and there's one that another that's well highlighted in the paper you know how would i use ddit3 immunohistochemistry would i use it in a morphologically straightforward mixoid liposarcoma no would i use it would i potentially use it in a round cell sarcoma that it's not a, you know, that's not a Ewing sarcoma and that's not a poorly differentiated synovial sarcoma and et cetera, et cetera, potentially. But I think the the probably the single most useful diagnostic application would be looking at treated tumors doing margin status. Like this is how I would always use MGM2 immunohistochemistry, you know, in a, in a whack out of, of a well-diff liposark maybe that's seen radiation, and there's funny cells from therapy, and you don't know whether they're tumor cells or, or not. In, in this instance, if they're strongly DDIT3 positive, it would suggest the presence of residual myxoid LPS.
1: So that brings up a question for me, and this is because my, my lack of experience in surgical pathology, if you will, so for margins, let's say if the margin is cauterized, does it still work?
2: It's a great question. I did not systematically look at cautery effect. I guess I would caution use of it as with any antibody in the context of cautery, because as we all know, that can, I guess I would sort of expect it to, <laughs> to, co- to yeah. cause problems for the antibody, but decal. I did not systematically. And decal. I also did not look at, de- I did not look at decal. But pack 7 works great in
3: decalcified yeah. bone marrow. <laughs> it <laughs> does? Right, yeah, we
1: did.
2: Yeah. That's
3: interesting. It, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah we had to... you, Sebastian wrote a really nice paper in, in Burkow's archives.
0: Yeah. Well, Greg, thanks for joining us. It's been really great talking with you, and I've learned a lot.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. It's been a pleasure and, uh, and an honor. Hope to be back. Great.
1: Thank you so much. This was great. I really, really learned a lot. Thank you.
3: Well, it's happened again. You've wasted another perfectly good hour listening to IHC talk.
0: Don't stain like my sister.
1: And don't stain like my brothers.
3: Don't stain like my chromogen siblings.
0: Support for the free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.